Welcome to the PR Moment Podcast. Produced in association with the Marketeers Network. This week, I'm interviewing Ketchum UK CEO Joanne Robinson as part of our series of one-to-one interviews with some of the most senior people in UK PR. Joanne has recently been appointed as UK CEO to Ketchum, having been at the firm since 2011. Previously, she spent eight years at Weber Shamwick. Joanne graduated in 2002 with a BA in politics from the University of Strathclyde. Joanne, welcome to the PR Moment podcast. Thank you. Should we get the politics question out of the way first? You're a massive Labour supporter, um, but frankly, from what I've heard anyway, not a huge Corbyn fan, shall we say. What's your perspective on the the future path of the UK Labour Party? Well, I think the first thing I would say is I'm not sure today I'm a huge UK Labour supporter or any part of the Labour Party supporter. And I think one of the things I've realised as I've kind of got a bit older is, you know, in my late teens and early 20s, particularly when I was at uni, I'd have died in a ditch for for Labour. And I thought it was because of Labour. But actually it was the political vision laid out by the Labour leadership at that time. And so one of the things I've realised as I've kind of grown up a bit, I suppose, is that actually what motivates and inspires me when it comes to politics is a political vision to make the country better. And the Labour Party was at one point an amazing vehicle for that sort of progressive politics. But it doesn't mean my loyalty is just to the vehicle. My loyalty is to the vision. And I think, unfortunately, right now, for someone like me, there's no party who's offering a progressive political vision. So we're kind of in no man's land right now. But in terms of the future of UK Labour, I think... um, I've had a really strong point of view that it will never be what it was again. And I know that there are a lot of people who disagree with me on that. But I think that the betrayal of uh, progressive, sensible centre politics and this incredible swing to the left, to what I consider to be unreasonable, unworkable, and in many ways... um, you know, not right for British culture, politics won't be forgiven, certainly, you know, in my uh, lifetime. And so I wonder if now's the time for a new progressive political movement. And I hope that there are people better than me thinking about what that looks like and how we build it. But fundamentally, the challenges we have in allowing an entry like that is the UK political system, which is so old school and built to sustain these two dominant parties. And I think we're getting to a point where British people are so disillusioned with politics and really no one is choosing a party because or um, someone to vote for because they think they're the best that the country will offer. They think they're the least worst. Sure. And so It's, it's not a politics of hope. It's a, oh a politics God, of, no. the, of the least bad. Or, Completely. Or, right. And that's got to blow up at some point. That's not sustainable. And I hope that it's sooner rather than later. It's a difficult one, though, isn't it? Because yeah. I, I mean, I'm put it, put, it, put it in crude business terms, the barriers to entry for any political party to enter the political system are, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know how to start. Well, someone said to me the other day, I, I think about this a lot, and if, uh, if I had more time, I'd probably try and do something about it. But someone said to me the other day, it's kind of as simple as, and this is my view at the angle we should come at it, is actually articulate an inspiring motivating political vision for the country. Where we often start is who will lead a party, what would the party be? That's all kind of for after for me. It's Can somebody articulate 
a progressive, inspiring, modern uh, political vision. And then from there, you will attract like-minded people and hopefully like-minded, successful, talented people. And then really in the current system, the only barrier, I say only, is identifying probably about 400 people exactly. that can stand in constituencies. <laughs> exactly. But is that really that hard? Like well, you, by the time you... the media's gone after their background and, and whatever cobwebs they've got. But, yeah, Maybe. it's difficult, isn't it? Um, it? I mean, if you think about... And it doesn't have to be... The, the range of people you could attract, you know, I think about... Um, you know, anyone who knows me knows I talk a lot about how how inspiring I find my mum. My I mean, she really has been a major influence and driver in my life and continues to be today. When I think about her constituency um, in the west of Scotland, I think she'd have a great chance. Okay. Normal, sure. yeah. working class Engaging. woman who's very active, got an MBA eight years ago, MBA, uh, eight years ago now for services to the community, active in the credit union movement, active in youth services and opportunities for young people, well-known and a progressive political view sure. could, could get behind an inspiring vision like that. So I think we could recruit people. I mean... But it needs a vision first and then the, the organisation afterwards. Exactly. Okay. So our our political revolution aside, um, <laughs> uh, just, I mean, I love the dream, but... Um, You're in, aren't you? No, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I probably am. Good. Yeah. Um, Corbyn is, is presumably going to lead Labour to the, the next election. Um, and unless the Tories can find a more engaging, more inspirational leader, Corbyn will probably win. Do, do, you, do you think that's right? Do you agree? Uh, I think in the current... I mean, here's one thing. I've given up predicting political outcomes because since uh, the last time I was right was the uh, Scottish referendum, and that's old hat these days. Right. So I don't know is my answer. I, there's a couple of things I'd say is I wouldn't underestimate the ability of the Conservative Party to sort themselves out. Um, They have always been better uh, at internal organisation. They've always been better at making a ruthless decision. Uh, If they think that the leader is going to be their Achilles heel, I think they'll get rid of Theresa without even thinking about it. Again, they have a similar... I mean, I think one of the problems with politics is it's difficult to find someone who's in Parliament right now who's articulating a political mm. vision or who's... You know, I've got this line that um, I've been using. You know, there's a, a US Harvard professor and historian, Nancy Cohen, who has just written a book about the lessons you can learn in leadership from historical figures. And one of the things she really talks about in this current environment is holding the line. So there's so much swirl from the right... Uh, in terms of standards and decency. There's so much swirl from the left in terms of standards and decency. Who's actually holding the line? Mm. Who in Parliament right now is standing up and saying, actually, hold on a minute, this is the progressive way forward for the country? And it's hard to find. So, I don't know, politics is surprising at the minute. Anything, things turn on a dime in a way they didn't previously. So I wouldn't underestimate the ability of the Tories to sort themselves out. And I, for one, hope beyond hope that Corbyn and his cronies are not leading this country because I think we'll see the true colour of them, particularly John McDonnell, who I think is a very dangerous man. OK. Just moving things away from politics to, to talk about your career, um, you've recently been promoted to CEO of Ketchum UK. How does that feel? It's great. It's um, It's been a bit of a whirlwind. 
uh, first few weeks of the year. Um, and as in typical as anyone who kind of has ever been promoted, I've kind of taken everything I did before and just added a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. So it's incredibly busy. But it feels, you know, I feel really proud to be leading Ketchum in London. It's, um, I think it's a great agency. We've got great people. We've got great clients. But there's a lot we can still do. There's a lot of room for growth. And I don't mean that just financially. I mean growth in terms of the skills and expertise of our people, in terms of the types of clients that we're going after, in terms of the evolution of us as an agency. Right. And um, so it's a really it, it's a really exciting time. And what, I mean, what, what prepares you to, I don't know, what is it, 240 people, something like that? What, what prepares you to, to suddenly be in charge of a team that size? I mean, it's, you know, you can have all the, the training you want, but all of a sudden um, you're the person in charge, aren't you? It can't, it's, a, it's a weighty responsibility. Yeah, it really is. And I think one of the things I've talked a lot about with um, my new exec team, which I uh, announced uh, just last week, which feels like it was a lifetime ago, which suggests how busy it is. Um, I've talked a lot about how what I'm talking about in terms of my aspirations for Ketchum in London and the reality of what our people feel every single day has to be the same thing. And it's definitely a learning I've had that, you know, I've had two years as deputy CEO where I've had a lot of, um, you know, Denise Kaufman, who was in post before me, has been incredibly generous at giving me opportunities to to lead and to try things and to coach and mentor me through that. Because previous to that in MD roles, I was running teams of, I think the biggest team probably I ran was about 45. Yeah. And it's easier to be a leader who dominates in that situation because yeah, sure. you've got yeah. time to... Yeah. spend time with every person and, and without being you know you are quite a dominating character yeah. so it's, but you're right you can't really you dominate you can't do that with 240 yeah, yeah, yeah. and so what I've learned and what I've really you know I I knew for quite a while I was going to be taking on the CEO job uh, so I've had time to really it's been a luxury to have a transition period to really think about that sort of thing and so I've put in place my executive team of people who I think who are incredibly different to me. Can you imagine eight people all like me? We'd never get anything done. But they all have different strengths in terms of their skill set, but also their personalities. And so one of the things I've been really thinking about and preparing for as we've come into the year is deploying them in the right way. So we've got the same expectation of what we're going to deliver, but people are going to do it slightly differently. Okay. I'm always intrigued with um, people's career paths in in PR. Um, you've worked for two firms for the majority of your career, um, Weber Shamrock originally and, and more recently Ketchum. Um, it's always a decision people have to make, isn't it, whether to stick or twist with their careers. And, and in the main, you've you've stuck mm-hmm. um, two fairly long stints at, at those two firms. Um, and frankly, it, it's worked out pretty well. Do you think, you know, is, is that down to you? Do you think, are you a fan of people sticking? What's your, because your, 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 a lot of people twist a lot, don't they? Totally. Uh, and there's that, is that two-year agency thing. Totally. It can, can leave you nowhere to go. But yeah. I can see why people move, you know, sometimes it does work. So Yeah, yeah. I, I can see both sides. I mean, I've always, and I think it comes from my political blood, I've always been very loyal to people and to organisations. And so I'm naturally more of someone who'll stick than twist. But I think that people are too quick. Um, And I think it's got, it really has got much worse in the last kind of five years or so to think the grass is greener. 
And also too quick to think that the problem is them, so their team, their client, the agency that they're in, than themselves. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's it's funny. Someone contacted me on uh, LinkedIn the other day, who I don't know, just to say, oh, um, I wonder if you could give me some mentorship around this exact question. I've been approached by another agency. I'm not sure what to do. They're offering me more money. And my advice to them was this. This is my advice to everybody. If you're in an agency or any job right now where you like and respect the people that you're working with every day, where you can find levels of inspiration and learning and where you can see a career trajectory, then why on earth would you change it for a few more pounds? Well, a few jobs are perfect, though, are they? So there's always... It's true. Um, you know, it's, but I think get to a mindset where what can you do to make it better? Yeah. Like, what is it... What can you do to influence the situation? It's one thing I, I learned... Um, someone said to me this a couple of years ago when I was bemoaning, like, someone I was working with. If only they'd do this. If only they'd behave like that. And she said to me, the thing you've got to remember, Joanne, is people don't fundamentally change. So wishing there yeah. were someone different... Yeah, yeah is a waste of time. What you can control is how you behave with them, how you influence them, how you motivate them, whatever it might be. And it sounds obvious, but it was a light bulb moment for me. And so I think any time you're in a job, I would always say before you you twist or jump or however you want to say it, think about what you can do to make it better. And I think people aren't... I've always been very vocal about saying to, for example, when I was at Weber, I had great mentors and champions and Colin Byrne, in Michael Prescott and a few others along the way. But at the same time, I was never shy at saying, actually, this is making me unhappy or I'd like an opportunity to do this. And sometimes they say no and they'd explain why, but I was always willing to have the conversation and it's been the same at Ketchum. So that'd be my advice to people. Sure. Grass I, isn't I always greener. The other element to that is, is the trajectory of the firm that you're at. I mean, if, they're, if, if the firm's doing well or, or OK, then... It's another reason to stick, isn't it? If growth, yeah. I think it was Matt Neal I was talking to at, at Golin. Growth makes running any firm, any business, <laughs> easier. A, a load easier. Yeah, <laughs> totally. exactly. And it pre- provides opportunity. It means you can give people pay rises. So, totally. so growth is a you know it opens everybody's doors, doesn't it? And sense. I think that's one of the things that in particularly big agencies, it's hard to keep having the conversation because sometimes people will say to me, particularly when you're in a big holding company firm, oh, it always feels it's about the numbers, it's about, you know, the revenue number, it's about the margin, all we talk about is the numbers, which is not true. But it's how people sometimes feel we're in this cog of just always trying to get to that next number. And the way I always describe it is, um, and it's similar to Matt's point, the number sets you free. Like, the number... That elusive number. If you're making that number, it's set. You can do things. You can invest in things. You can promote more people. You can hire more people. So it's absolutely right. It's easier when you're growing. But I would also say, if you're in an agency that's having a tough time and is struggling, see that as an opportunity, because they're going to be looking for people who can make a difference, who can drive innovation, who can suggest things that are going to turn the tables. So again, I think. It's, all, it's not always a reason to to jump. Sure. And okay. I think people are too quick to jump. So even if you just take a pause and still decide, then that's better than... Sure. Well, the environment, the, the talent environment, well, I think globally, to be honest, but certainly in London, is is that um, demand outstrips supply, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So, so there is always, um, and 
there was always somebody who's willing to pay a bit more. Yeah, a recruiter, another company, mm-hmm. someone who's exactly. Um, so you're 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 in that situation you just described with somebody on the end of the phone saying, "Well, I'll give you a, couple, a bit a few more quid." So it's yeah, you can see why it happens. I can indeed. Um, which moves us on quite nicely to my next question. I just which was going to be talking about the, the global PR groups, not not just Omnicom, the global PR groups as a whole, are struggling to grow organic revenues um, much more than three percent, which is okay, but it's not it's not great. Um, how do you see the the international PR market evolving? Um, do you know what? I'm always a firm believer that you're the master of your own destinies, and the the majority of clients that I see don't. Um, don't think about it in those terms. Of course, they look at what benefits or otherwise you get from being part of a big international network and a holding company versus a boutique and all of that. Um, but clients are looking for the best people. And it kind of links to the conversation we've been having. I think where we you know, we and kind of the international firms need to be focusing our efforts is putting our people first, that they feel that they're part of a... And when I say growing, I don't necessarily mean financially. I mean growing in terms of opportunity, growing in terms of skills, growing in terms of the you know international opportunities. And I think too often we fall down on that. And the you know, I've been part of two, and we can make promises that we don't follow through on with our talent. So uh, at Omnicom, we have something called Omnicom University, which I went to last year and has recently brainwashed me that. It's all about put your people first and the revenue will grow. Right. Do we do that every day? No. And so I think my challenge to myself and the commitment I made to my staff in our 2018 kickoff meeting was my number one priority this year is you. And here's what I'm going to do and here's what I expect of you in terms of growth, not financial growth, personal growth, team growth, client growth, because if we grow, then that will lead to the number growing. And that means what? That means new additional skills. Right. It's kind of looking at yourself and saying, what am I great at and what could I be better at? So how do I invest in developing that? Sure. Or what can I not do right. that would actually add an additional string to my bow, so good for me, but then I can sell that to my client? Exactly. I was going to say, which, which, which corresponds with what the clients want. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm always, I don't know, I don't always feel, sorry is not the right word, but I, I'm always <laughs> intrigued for international PR firms in London. Um, you know, London is a, a very competitive market. There's a wonderful history oh, yeah. of um, startup entrepreneurial firms coming into the market, especially on the the consumer side of things. But not, but not only actually. Um, so it must be a tough place to, to run a, a big international firm because you've got these guys snapping at your heels, doing really good work. You know, what, how, what does that challenge look like on a day to day? To be honest, I think it's tough for everybody because right. it's so competitive. And you know what? We we always talk about in uh, agency life, but learning as much from when we lose as when we win and yeah. stuff like that. But there's very rarely, um, certainly in my experience across two big firms, that there's a consistent reason why. Sometimes it's because we're too big. Sometimes it's because we didn't show our international reach enough. Sometimes right. it was. We weren't creative enough. Sometimes it was we weren't uh, nitty gritty enough, and okay. the tactics. Yeah, so it, it makes it difficult, doesn't it? To, it changes, and that. I think that's why it's about. Um, it doesn't matter who you're competing against. It's about there's kind of a, a range of things. One, it's about the quality of people you put in front of them, because in our industry, people are buying people, and if you put a team that has the right chemistry and the right skills who've listened to what the client needs, and that's a skill in this industry we all need to work on, 
listen to what they're asking for. Don't tell them their brief is wrong. I mean, we love to be like, oh, they don't know what they want. Here's like what you really need. Listen to what they want. You can say, here's what you've asked for and here's a bit more, but don't dismiss it. I don't think it matters whether you're you know, a five-man band or a 240 or a bloody Edelman who I think are like 500 nod, right? Right. I don't think it matters because if you strike the right relationship with the client and offer them something that they want to buy, then you'll win. Okay. What um, I've known you for a few years, and I you've you've recently well, how old your your your, your child now? He's eighteen months. Eighteen months. So you've you had a, a little baby boy eighteen months ago, and anyone who the love of my um, life <laughs> is connected connected with you on social media will will be uh, well versed on on um, all sorts of details of of um, your baby boy. Um, but I get the sense that that well, clearly it's been like a, for everybody, it's it's a huge event in people's lives. I, I'm just intrigued about talking about how that's changed your approach to work, how that's changed your approach to career, or, or maybe it hasn't. Um. Has it? Ch- I mean, I think what it's done is, it's. Um, I don't think it's a changed my approach to work or career in the sense that I mean I'm one of these strange people who doesn't find work work. I was lucky to strike an industry early on that I love, a job that I love, and it ticks all my boxes in terms of. Lots of people engagement, lots of creativity, lots of targets to win and succeed. So I don't really see work as work. And I knew long before I ever got pregnant that if I had a baby, that I'd want to go back to work full time. And everyone all told me, oh, it will change when the little one arrives. And it really didn't. I think what it has um, done is focus the mind. Because I'm not as... um, distracted during the day so you know I'm very focused on what needs to get done and who I need to see what I need to achieve time is a limited resource time is incredibly precious and so I'd say that my priorities have changed in the sense that you know work was probably 80% of my day my life and then I've, I've always had a great social life I've always done politics as you know, I've always done baton twirling. So I've had a full... It's not like I was work-obsessed, but work was allowed to dominate and it was allowed to creep into other things. Whereas now, the most important thing in my life is care. Right. And so um, whilst I still love work, it's given me a bit more of a balance and a bit more perspective on... You know, I don't get as uptight, upset, worried. Now, if I get an a email from a client who's like not happy pre-care I'd have been like this is a disaster like all hands on decks fix it whereas now I'm like okay this is a problem that needs to be solved and right. it can be so more pragmatic and just more perspective okay I mean related to that I mean PR uh, well you mentioned it earlier it does have a, a talent retention problem we lose far too many good people from the sector um, and a lot of them are parents a lot of them are, are mothers who mm-hmm. don't come back um, from, from having a child um what do you think? I mean, there's been a huge amount of, of yeah. talk um, and policies and, I don't know, no doubt a few white papers written on it. Um, but we still lose too many good working parents, majority frankly mm-hmm. mothers from the sector. Uh, and bearing in mind we're a, 
um, talent is in any survey I've seen recently is the number one growth limiting 100%. factor of, of certainly agencies. It just seems bizarre that we're not better or we haven't come up with a better solution to that problem of making. I don't know whether it's the type of work. I don't know whether it's we're not making it easier enough for people. I think but, we don't but, make it easy enough. Right. I think there's a couple of things really, and I think actually what I'm seeing is this started as a kind of um, mother return to work thing, but actually you see the same challenges with this millennial generation yeah. in terms of how they want to balance their lives, and ultimately this is what it's about. It's about you know, I like to call it work-life integration because I think balance, you're never going to balance, you're never going to spend as much time on your life as you are at work because it's just not the way the world is set up right now. Um, but it's about integration, it's about flexibility. Do and you think it's about the type of work as well? I mean, because I mean, I'm not sure. Do you not get the feeling that some younger people don't necessarily want to come in and, and do a media relations calling grunt type campaign? Uh, and the same might be true of, of mothers what, who come back to work. You know, they don't want to do that sort of work I think, anymore. Because it's not interesting enough. I mean, well, I, but I, I think you're talking it. about a channel, right? So the kind of media selling is a channel. Yeah. If the strategy and the creative that you're putting together yeah. is exciting and and it matters, then that you, of course. There's an element of it that's going to be the media selling and achieving earned coverage, but there's so much more to it now. I mean, sure. it's, that's still the core of what we do, but it's not all that we do. So you don't you don't feel I there's a type the of work, work problem? It's no, a, it's I think a... it's about um, yeah. One of the things that I was determined to do is to role model how you can manage uh, both pregnancy and maternity leave, and then ultimately returning to work. And I did it different to anyone who has done it at Ketchum before. So. Right. I made a point of it being pregnant not being a topic. Right. <laughs> so, and I wouldn't Wait, let... So when, when you were... Yeah, yeah, when I was pregnant, yeah. I was like, well, it's irrelevant. I don't know why we're discussing it. And then when I was on maternity leave, I decided to... And, and you're pleased you did that? Is yeah. That correct? Okay. Right. Yeah. yeah, because it was kind of like, it's a natural thing that happens. It's not limiting me in any way. Okay. It's different. Some, some women have really difficult pregnancies sure. and they need support and that's absolutely right. But otherwise, it's... It's okay. It's just Life is on. normal. Yeah. Work is normal. Um, and then when I was on uh, maternity leave, I decided to use keeping in touch days, which a lot of women don't even know about. Or if they do, it's not talked about how you can use them. So I use them. You get paid for them as well, so it's a little kind of bonus while you're on maternity leave. But I'd use it to keep in touch with clients. So I'd go. I'd know there was a client well, meeting I, come up. I, I assume that was a Ketchum. Um, no, it's a. Uh, it's a. It's a government UK scheme, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Right. So you you're can say I want 10, a keeping in touch. Ten day. keeping in right. touch days during no matter how long your maternity leave is, whether it's three months okay. or twelve months, you can use to, up to ten keeping in touch days. And you get paid extra for. You them. get paid for your day. Okay. And you can. I, I used it to. Um, spend time with my clients so that I didn't lose touch completely and I knew it was happening in terms of their campaign development. I used it, it my um, maternity leave was kind of at the second half of the year so uh, in the fourth quarter I used it for planning and uh, strategy for the 2017 plan right. but it kept me in the business without it infringing on uh, my time with Kiar. And then I phased my return to work. So when I came back work to when I came officially back to work, I came back to work one day a week right. for the first two months. Uh, and and how, how long after having Kia was that? That was uh, four months. Okay. And then after six months, I came back full time. But being really vocal and honest about how I was managing it, 
has really helped. And so now I've seen is kind okay. of the next tranche of women have gone off and are coming back. We're seeing different requests. So whilst we've always had requests for, oh, I'm returning to work, so I'd like to do four days a week, one day from home or whatever, we've now got people coming back. In fact, we've just had um, uh, one of my staff return last week. She's doing two days a week for the first month. She's then doing three days a week for the next two months. And then she's back full time after that. Right. We'd never had requests like that before. So, so allowing her to phase. confidence to, yeah. to ask. There's no one size yeah. fits all. Depends on where they live, how long the commute is. All what, of that. You know, the kid, how the kid is. And know. also I think our type of work, I always say we're really lucky, the industry that we work in. I think sometimes we bemoan it way too much. It's a wonderful uh, yeah. industry in terms of where we work, how we work. And flexibility is critical. We don't have clients who log in at 9 and leave at 5.30. There's many times we have to work into the night. There's many times we start early in the morning. Sometimes it creeps into the weekend. So I certainly don't have an expectation that anybody has to be in my office 9 till 5.30, five days a week, or if they work part-time, four days a week or whatever. We have a smart working policy that I'm really driving home, which is make work fit for your life and we're going to judge you on your impact and your outcomes not where you are at any given moment so you take into account what you need to do in terms of your own team in terms of your client in terms of the agency but ultimately if we're judging people on the impact that they have and the outcomes they're achieving then we're giving them that real flexibility to manage drop off pick up looking after an elderly parent the fact yeah. that they've got you know a startup company on the side an elderly parent who's ill whatever it might be but as an industry we have to get better at that if we're going yeah. to retain talent well there's been a huge amount as i said there's been a lot of chat about it but i and i when i talk to, to people they always tell me give me case studies of 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 examples of, of what they're doing and how they're doing it, but then you go and talk to a few recruiters or, or you know some some staff, and it you get the feeling that the change isn't quite happening as fast as it might be. But, I think that's um, right, but I think and I would say that's that's true of you know Ketchum in London. I'd say this time last year, flexible working was a kind of you can come in an hour late or or leave like right. an hour earlier to catch a train. But like you know there are solid times where you have to be here. And it's taken a real concerted effort. Um, Kirsty Sacrada, our HR director, sent me an article while I was on maternity leave, actually, uh, which was all about... um, I can't even remember which company it is now, so I feel bad, but a major company doing this thing called Leave Loudly. And it was about senior leaders role modelling. There's so many instances where people are like, oh, I'm going to a meeting. You're not, you're going to pick up your kid, yeah, and right. that's okay. Yeah, yeah, and so, well, you know, me, I don't ever leave anywhere quietly, <laughs> but so my people know I'm going to pick up gear, yeah, right. like, and so, they know so, that's how I live, and I can I give them permission to do that too. So, if there were three things to think about as a as a, a thing to help, um, things to do that firms need to do that to help, um, parents return to work, one, one is role modeling 100%. Um, what would your second and third one be? Uh, one is role modelling. One is um, being vocally permissible right. about what people can and can't do. Right. Um, and I think the third piece is about innovation. Technology. So it's trying different things. Right. And it's not being afraid. I think we've been in an industry for a long time where there's this absolute fear of failure. Yeah. And I've been, again, one of my things I'm really driving with the agency right now is bringing an entrepreneurial spirit. Try it. 
Try it. And learn work. from it. Don't do it again. And be honest about it. Say to the person, we're going to try... And I've been doing this with um, requests for return to work. My PA um, is returning from maternity leave in February. And she's made some requests. And I'm like, yeah, let's try it. Let's try it for like, the first three months. And then we'll sit down and we'll say, is it working for you? Is it working for me? What do we need to tweak? And there's just an honesty and transparency yeah, sure. about that. Right, OK. The one thing I'd like to add, though, on this, because I think this is important, too often it's put on to the employer... Right. that it's all about what they do. My big call to action is for women to take more time to think about what's right for them during their pregnancy, during their maternity and returning to work and be very clear about what they want to ask from their employer. And I know in some businesses and some industries that's easier said than done, but I think if there's more women who really take control of that, I think that will help to move businesses on faster. OK. Um, and finally... Um have you ever been world champion in anything, do you know? <laughs> I haven't been world champion, ah. but I have been uh, five times British champion. Oh, you should have you tipped me <laughs> off on that. Okay. No, because I, I suppose it's a, good, um, it's a good example of something. I mean, I did aspire to be a world champion, okay. but sadly was never quite of, uh, of that level. You were but good, but not quite. I was... I was I was really good. Go on, tell us about twirling. Baton twirling. Right, so everyone has to go onto YouTube and... We'll put the uh, link, we'll put the, the, the YouTube... Um, we'll put a link, the, the, yeah, the exactly. And have a look at baton twirling, because I know everyone listening to this right now is thinking of people with big hats marching in the yeah. streets. That is majorettes. Lovely. Um, baton twirling is an amazing sport. You'll all watch it and be stunned. It's a combination of gymnastics dance and the art of manipulating but the baton. My question is, how on earth did you get into baton twirling? Well, a well, I have loads of questions, <laughs> but we haven't got time. That, let's just roll with it's that one. It's a funny story in terms of what I do now. In right. the, uh, when I was in primary school yeah. uh, in Scotland, in primary seven, which is your last year before you go to secondary school, we did, Penneburn Primary School did a primary seven newspaper. Right. And like you could spend the whole year doing it. Anyway, I was... Uh, one of the journalists on the newspaper. And I heard about this girl in uh, our local council estate who was going to the World Baton Twirling Championships in Texas. And I thought, well, that's a story. Who from, you know, the west of Scotland council estates goes to Texas? So I went and interviewed her. And uh, Tracy, I was her bridesmaid, so one of my best friends today, and uh, I came home that night and I said to my mum, I want to be a baton twirler. Now, I was one of those kids who wanted to be everything and stuck at it for about five minutes. So my mum rolled her eyes and was like, OK, let's go. So we went to the class and um, I did just a real natural ability for it. I, I, I've watched the video. It's not, it doesn't look <laughs> it's easy. It's not easy. It does not look easy. And, um, and so the trick, I think, that my mum had, one, I had a natural ability, so that always makes a kid more interested in something. But my mother's trick was she refused to buy me my own baton for six months to make sure that I was going to stick at it. And everyone who's read the books about habits, that's about the time it takes to. So I was in a habit by then. So, so yeah, I I was basically a wee 11-year-old journalist who got... um, Interested in the the subject matter, but and but how old were you when you won the, the British when you were British champion? Uh, the first, um, well, the first time they ever had a British uh, Open freestyle championships was in nineteen ninety seven. Oh right, so I was seventeen, and oh. I was the first person ever to win it, and I won it for the next uh, five years. Oh my goodness! 
But um, I so multiple British multiple. Wow. But I um, I was also a real latecomer to the sport. I only started when I was eleven, right. uh, whereas most people start when they're three. So you know. I worked bloody hard. Raw talent. <laughs> Raw yeah. talent that was a rough diamond that was made to sparkle. Oh, perfectly put. Joanne, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the PR Moment podcast, produced in association with the Marketeers Network. If you'd enjoyed the show, please do review us on iTunes and give us a decent rating.